Listener Production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. One of my favourite ways to do that is by running live events, like our annual Leadership Summit. There's nothing quite like being in a room full of inspiring women, hearing their stories and sharing leadership experience. Well, in this series, I'm bringing you the next best thing to being there in the room and sharing the highlights from our 2022 summit. On this occasion, we bring men into the conversation because I think way too often men are left out of these discussions. So as the moderator of this gender equal panel, you won't be surprised to learn this is one of my favorite sessions of the two days. The panel features CEO of Salesforce, Pip Marlowe, CEO of Plan International Australia, Suzanne Legina, and two men, future women's head of diversity and inclusion, Turang Chuola, and someone I've known for many years, the former ABC director of news, Gavin Morris. I started by asking our panel, who experiences workplace sexual harassment? Are rates worse amongst certain groups of women? And are men also victims? Here's Pip Marlowe. The studies and the research will show you both men and uh, women do experience sexual harassment and it's something that nobody should have to face into. However, it is more likely for a female to experience sexual harassment and for it to derail her career more than a male. And and you just have to look back um, at the stories in the press to know that more often in in these high-profile stories, the female is the first one to exit and be challenged and branded for sometimes afterwards, which is um, horrific to face into. It's why stories like Brittany Higgins, who is such an exceptionally brave young woman, and Grace Tame are just like people I respect and admire a ton because to stand up and share that and be vulnerable and know that not every story told about you when you've been backgrounded by other people, et cetera, as part of that is it's it's horrific to know what um, those women were put through. But also when you add intersectionality to it, it gets even more challenging. So certainly uh, we have a role to make sure it doesn't happen, but often in the workplace, still today, the majority of people in power are still men. The statistics don't lie, it's great to see the progress, but the majority of CEOs and leadership teams are still men. So unless the men who own the policies, the culture and the procedures around that lean in to change that, we're not going to see change happening at, at fast enough levels. Pip, you've been in senior levels for a long time now and and CEO. Are you you seeing change and is there momentum at the moment or or is it the same level of change that you've experienced? Yeah, so look, I grew up in the tech industry and candidly I grew up learning to survive in that industry, not necessarily thrive. It was very, very male-dominated in the 90s and the behaviours and the things that, you know, I experienced then were just... You don't see that level as much, but let's not fool ourselves. The benchmark is in a Harvey Weinstein, okay? It's microaggressions, microharassments, those things are not okay. So what I see is less of the materially big egregious that was very commonplace um, and that I certainly experienced in the 90s. 
But what I don't see is progress happening fast enough in regard to change because, frankly, there's a whole next generation of women who are not going to have parity in the workplace. They will not be paid the same for the same work they do. They will not reach the same heights as men do unless something changes. So, yes, some things have improved, but to me, frankly... As I say, sometimes um, glaciers are melting faster. We wouldn't accept this in other places and we, we've accepted it for too long when it comes to gender equity. I'm really interested to hear what your experience was at the ABC, Gav. Look, I think like any large organisation, you know, the ABC for a long time was slow to act on some of these things. And look, not just the representation of women in the storytelling and, uh, you know, in senior roles across the organisation, but also the representation of all Australians. And at a place like the ABC, that's just not, you know, on really. It's, it's a public media owned by all of us. If it can't at least reflect all of the diversity in our community in proportion to the community, then it's not doing its job right. So to Pip's point, in recent years, there's been a lot of work done at the ABC to try to turn that around. And, and, and again, through often the very granular measurement of where we were falling short at the ABC and what we needed to do to make that up. And so by starting to measure it and reflect it back through all the conversations that were being had in the ABC over the past few years at an editorial level, you started to see progress being made. But I tell you what, as someone who'd been in this industry for a long time, you do really wonder why it took so long for all of us in the media to sort of realise that this was not only something that was you know, important for us to do, but it was just a kind of normal thing for us to do, to be able to sort of do this in the way we were reflecting stories, reflecting society, doing journalism, all of those sorts of things. I mean, Helen, we'll we'll go back 25, 30 years when you and I were in the press gallery together. And I mean, I've watched all of these things that have unfolded in recent times around the culture of what went on inside Parliament House. And, you know, I've reflected on a lot because I remember being a young man in the press gallery back then and seeing things happen to women around me in the press gallery. Uh, you and I have shared some stories ourselves about stuff that went on back then. And I remember as a man, young man who was kind of new to the world and trying to work it all out and trying to work out how, you know, gender relationships worked and all the rest of it, thinking that that sort of stuff was normal and that this was the kind of thing that went on. This must be what grown-up life is like. This is what happens out there in the big world. Totally wrong. It was just an extremely poor culture. And I think, you know, 30 years later, 25 years later, we're now having that conversation about Parliament House in a concerted way. How on earth has it taken that long? How on earth has it taken us in the media not to grasp onto these issues much, much earlier on and ensure that women's stories and everybody's stories are told much more fairly and much more honestly. And it's been incredible to me that it's taken this long. I'm just going to go down to Suzanne and say, you've, you're working in a not-for-profit. What do you see in terms of the ability to engage men and get change in your sector? Yes, I was just going to say two things. One of them is tomorrow we're going to release some research which we've done with numerous other organisations around the world. It's called the Equal 2030 Gender Equality Index, tracking our progress against gender equality to the SDG 2030 goals. And that will say that one in every three countries, the progress on gender equality has actually gone backwards. And in Australia, it will say that we've stagnated on 14 and that we have Spain, Ireland and New Zealand ahead of us, and that if you're a 10-year-old girl in Australia, you will not see uh, freedom from violence on the street in your lifetime. 
So, you know, when you say, is the change happening fast enough? I'm sitting here just thinking to myself, hell no, hell no. And I'm frustrated in a way, like we're holding up half the sky. I, I don't know how we can hold up half the sky, look after the children, clean the houses, start the new businesses, you know, contribute economically, do all the emotional labour and also reinvent a new world at the same time. We do need allies in this. I'm sorry, we cannot do it alone. In our working plan, we say that we are the, the charity for girls, equality, for gender equality, because we believe that if we can make the world better for girls, you can make it better for everyone. But that means we have to work with, with everyone. So, you know, starting with fathers. You know, so in many of the places where we work, we start early childhood education, getting dads more involved in looking after their kids and doing the household chores because we cannot free up women until men take their fair share of the work there. We challenge the gender stereotypes because we know that those rigid gender stereotypes is a driver for the kind of violence that sometimes occurs later on in life. We work with boys. I mean, we have a, our own Champions of Change program that started in Latin America. It really challenges these notions of toxic masculinity. It works with boys and with girls and then brings them together to talk about how are we going to do this better or differently together? Because I don't want to keep keep inventing the world in the image that we have it now. And so it does absolutely involve that. And in, I mean, I love the work you're doing on Changemakers. We have to take the conversation to men. Well, we are in, you know, we've been piloting this program. We've been talking to people for 12 months about it. We are learning an awful lot. Tarong, microphone to you. What have you learned? A is the one who is in this space publicly and continuously. And two, from training men in organisations. Yeah, full on question, Helen. Um, I, I wanted to flag that when we're having these conversations around equality and inequality and the gender drivers of harassment, violence and discrimination towards women, that Aboriginal women face violence at rates far beyond the rest of the population. And I think it's very important that we, as a collective in this room, acknowledge the disproportionate harms that First Nations women in particular are subjected to. And in responding to the question, Helen, I think the number one thing that I've learned from working with men through Changemakers is that men are far more interested than I think the, the mainstream gives them credit for. I think a lot of men in particular come from the noblest of intentions but have very little clue, almost like comically low of an idea of what to do and how to work with women or anyone that's not of the ilk of their private school or public school that they went to. It's almost as though male development occurred at some point up until 16 or 18 and then just stopped. <laughs> and I think a lot of that will change thanks to the work of, say, you know, Chanel Contos and countless others. You know, that we will have a generation of, of boys who grow up with a sense of equality and respect for women and people of all genders. Um, but I think that's been the thing for me that stood out, is that men want to be part of the solution. They don't have any idea of how to approach it. And so that takes me to the second point. When we're doing the Changemakers program, uh, whether it's you know me co-facilitating or one of the other facilitators, one of the things that I always strive to do is meet people where they are. It's Great, you know, if we want to sit in our ivory tower and say, well, I'm holier than thou, I know everything and they know absolutely nothing, you know. The fact that I could rile, you know, rile up statistics about the state of inequality doesn't make me any better than them. It's really about how do we as a collective make the opportunity for business, for organisations, so that women are empowered. 
You know, if we look statistically at the population, women are 51% of the Australian population and yet they occupy so few positions of leadership. That doesn't make sense. And First Nations women, women of colour, women from culturally diverse backgrounds, women who identify as LGBT, they're not represented in positions of power and positions of leadership. And so I think one of the things that's so crucial is when men are the ones making decisions in these positions of power, is supporting them to get the education that they didn't have. And Changemakers does that. It's the education that what you're doing is not working in creating psychologically safe workplaces or creating workplaces free from discrimination and harm towards primarily women. But it's also not allowing you to have employees reach their full potential collectively. And so the thing that's really stuck out is that men are so interested in wanting to learn and know more because the benefits of gender equality don't just extend to women. You know, one of the great things, Helen, that over the past um, six to 12 months has been seeing the shift as a result of the pandemic with working from home and things is men telling me, hey, I get to spend more time with my children. I want to be able to do that. So I'm going to go to HR to talk about how we can have flexible working arrangements so I can show up for my partner, my children and work. And I just think that's fantastic. And why haven't we done it sooner? Piv, is that your experience at Salesforce and in previous roles, um, that you're seeing a greater engagement with men who are looking to have a bigger role at home? That's my first question. And second question, how have you gone about engaging your male workforce? Yes, there's a couple of things in that. So I think there's a responsibility of leaders in business to create one, a culture, because you can have a process or a policy, but if you don't have a culture that celebrates and really encourages people to take advantage of that, um, then I think it's it's great on paper, but it doesn't happen. So one of the things you know, I you know, love about the reason, I, one of the reasons I joined the company is one of the five values is equality. And so when it comes to parental leave, we pay for 26 um, weeks for primary and um, 13 for secondary, no gender mentioned. And we really encourage and we work with, you know, the men in our environment to take that because if we are going to normalise women in the boardroom, you need to normalise men at home. So one is culturally, do we do it? And then do how, how well do the systems that you put in place support that to allow people, men and women, to have those choices? So paying parental leave, extending the amount, paying super on parental leave because we know that women end up with far less super um, by the time they retire. So we've got to do things to change the systems and support the cultural outcomes. So I think, yes, I've seen progress. I feel really um, good about it, but it's not yet manifested itself in totality, enough shift with women in you know, senior roles or representations at the boardroom. And I think we, we've got to be careful because quite often when I talk to people, people say, well, it's a pipeline issue. And in Australia, we rank like number one in the world for educational outcomes for all your amazing women, but we're dropping in workforce participation. And if we could just move that to be the same as men, we'd add about $11 billion to GDP. And that creates a cycle. Then you get more taxpayers who are then paying tax and then we can maybe afford better quality childcare as I know you're an advocate for. So we've got to make sure we're doing all of those things, but it doesn't matter how many policies you put in place if the culture still works against you doing that. And that's where role models and having men role modelling doing that and celebrating that is an important part of it. Yeah, and I think um, you make some interesting points. I'm wondering whether you 
like to wrong when you talk to your male executives at that level? Like, do, you know, when you're, you've got your one-on-ones, you've got the men in the office, I know you've got amazing women. Do you have any men on staff, actually, by the way? I do have some. <laughs> They're great, great, great men on staff. Yeah, we talk about it a lot. Yeah. I mean, we have it as one of our core metrics. We, we talk about, we measure volunteering days. Um, every company I've worked for has always done volunteering, like whatever the amount are. But the difference is we measure it, we monitor it, we celebrate it. And if we find teams where volunteering isn't done, we go figure out what's on your back. Same with gender representation. We measure it, we monitor it, and when we're not getting progress, we have that conversation. It is a business priority because the better we mirror the market we serve, the better the outcomes are for our customers. Helen here again, jumping back in to say how I was a little surprised to hear how men can struggle to lead reform. From Gavin's experience in a large organisation seeing inaction on gender equality, to Tarung's working in our Changemakers program and seeing men who want to help but have no idea how. I think it highlights how we have to engage men in these chats. We left off with Pip Marlow discussing how in her company is a combination of cultural and systemic changes that she's putting in place to create progress for gender equality. Now, I asked Gavin what he sees from the men at his organisations. I think there are various different levels of things going on within minds and within the action that you're seeing out of men in, in organisations at the moment. I mean, I, I remember I learned a great lesson a few years ago where I was one of those people that figured you had to sit in the newsroom until the news went to air and you had to kind of stay at your desk for as many hours as you could each day. And then we had illness in the family and I went through a period where I did not want to be in the office at all. Um, but I thought, okay, I'm going to reset something here. I'm going to go home and have dinner with my children and I just got a a sort of a a new executive role and it was all very busy and I reckon for months I felt guilty about this idea that I was going to get up and leave at 5 or 5.30 to go home and have dinner with my children until uh, one of my colleagues came up to me and said, well, thank God you do it because as a woman we all do it and we feel guilty about it. And it took me, that was it for me. I never felt guilty about it ever again. And this is not that long ago, right? And, you know, thankfully in the last few years, you've seen more flexibility come into the workplace for everybody. But this was only a few years ago and this was still the sort of attitude that often existed, not not just in newsrooms, but in any organisation. And so, so I think one of the things that I was inspired by then was a few years later, the BBC did this great piece of work around 50-50 you know, they ran a whole program about it. They recognised that they needed to lift the, the proportion of stories that were being done by women and, and the voices that were in the stories, uh, you know, were disproportionate. They need to fix that. So a bunch of our team with Inside ABC News saw this happening. And it wasn't a management-led thing. They didn't come because management told them to. They came and said, we'd like to do this too in the ABC. And they organised themselves around it. And we started measuring the proportion of women in our stories and in our storytelling, and it was appalling. As soon as we measured it, we looked at it and went, wow, this is, you know, two-thirds to a third kind of thing was the sort of ratio that we had. And we then sat down and talked about this, and, you know, all those usual excuses were made. Well, it's because all the men are politicians and all the sports people are politicians, and all not true and all unacceptable, but nevertheless, these were the sort of conversations we had at first. And then we started changing what we did. And I thought, look, to go from how 
bad we are to getting to some sort of level of 50-50 equality in our output's gonna take us years and years and years. But simply by focusing on it, continuing to measure it, continuing to have conversations, within 18 months we'd fixed it. Never had that sort of equality in our storytelling before. We fixed it in 18 months just by measuring it and responding into it. And so I think one of the great reflections during the team at that time was this is not a gender issue per se. It's not a diversity issue per se. It's a humanity issue. And actually, if what we're seeking to do here is be more excellent in our jobs each day, we can gain more audience, we can be more successful in telling stories that people find more interesting, it just became part of an ambition of what we did at ABC News, not some sort of program or scheme that we were doing because we thought it was a good thing to do. Did you meet much resistance? Or like Pip says, if you're measuring it, then that's the, that's the key to getting real change. We met resistance to measuring it and we met, you, you all have read the stories at the time, we had a lot of external criticism for measuring it. Remember the, you know, the woke ABC for kind of measuring diversity numbers and, and, and gender and all of these sorts of things. So we, we got a lot of external criticism. Internally, what you got were, was a lot of scepticism based around some of these issues that are urban myths, if you like. You know, that, well, you know, of course you can't get 50% representation you know, of gender in our stories because all the important people that the news talks to each day are all men. You know, those sorts of conversations were had a lot. And bit by bit through the success of doing more stories driven by many of the amazing women within ABC News at the time uh, and this, this passion of that group just to say, look, we can do a much better job here and we can improve it, that went away pretty quickly. And, you know, it, it now is just seen as a real, uh, you know, a, a driving force within the way that we talk about stories each day. And now it's spread within ABC News with the team that's still there to something called 50-50 equality, which is now looking, you know, I think that team has done a really great job in the last few years to do better job of telling Indigenous stories and stories of Australians with disability and, and more culturally diverse stories. And you can see that on the screen, on the, you can hear it on the radio. But, you know, it's just a momentum now within the ABC that I think is now unstoppable. They've got more work to do and they'll continue to do it because there's a lot of passionate people now within the organisation driving it. Suzanne, is there any risk with, you know, talking about men like this, that we start to forget about women's voices, that we start to elevate men's voices and we forget about women's voices? Do you see any risk in this at all? I haven't. I mean, I have seen this in some of the places where we work where, you know, we've had to keep sort of spaces, I suppose, for women and for girls and their leadership and for boys and their men and their just stories. And then we've had to kind of curate the coming together because those power differences, they manifest in who takes the time, who speaks up, who gets to talk. So I think it can just be really thoughtfully done. I think it's really intentional the way you set out to do it. I think women should still be able to speak about their own lived experiences. They're the ones telling the stories about what they're experiencing. And I think that what you need then for men is to listen a lot more and tune in to what they're hearing and also tap into how um, that gender inequality manifests in their own life. Tarung, you talked about, you know, men telling you about how they wanted to spend more time with their children. And I, I you know, you hear about so many stories of men telling, you know, on their deathbed that they really don't, they don't love the fact they spent their whole life at their work. You know, all the things that are meaningful about life are not found just in workplaces, you know? They're found in all the gamut of lived experience. And so we have to free up men from these really gendered, rigid stereotypes as well. It's just not a healthy way to live. There's a better way we can unlock the talent, 
and the human capital in this country, by more flexibility, more diversity, we should be representing the communities that we serve. And I think if we could just create, I think the key is you don't want people to dominate. But I think, you know, we've done quite a lot of anti-racist training recently in our organisation and I like another veil coming off people's eyes because I don't think we talk about race very much or very well in this country. And so when you start to do that, you start to hear people saying, I couldn't see this before. You talk about visibility. It's like a veil being released. You know, you go, I didn't see that before, but now once you see it, then you're responsible to do something about it. And if you can skill people up with what to do about it, then you get change. The reason why we um, built Changemakers was because Kate Jenkins came to us a couple of years ago and said, no one's doing this, you need to do it. And I was very hesitant about building it because I was worried that a business called Future Women couldn't go into organisations and tell men what to do. And then we met and talked to Tarang and we worked through it. Um, what do you think are the key barriers to the men in your world to a better understanding of the issues that we're talking about broadly? When I think globally, I mean, some of the work and the evidence that we're doing, I mean, it's as basic as sun preference. I mean, everywhere in the world, you know, you have missing millions of girls in India. They're either not born or they're neglected before they're five years old. You can read Lancet articles about them everywhere in the world. If you're in South Sudan, you are more likely to die in childbirth than finish secondary school. You know, the way that the disregard and disrespect, I think, for girls and women world over is the single biggest barrier. We are just not treated as humans. <laughs> and everywhere you go, I just think, could we be treated with the same humanity if we could? If you could look at us like humans with equality, then you would treat us with more respect. That is a great segue to Tarang. This is, this is your life's work, is advocacy for um, victim survivors of family violence. Um, what would you add there? I, you know, I wanted to... Um, I think we owe that com those comments a round of applause. Like, that is literally... Um, they're literally the core of it. The... the the notion that girls and women should be treated with fundamental human rights and equality and respect. And I think one of the key points that's so crucial to what Susanna said is the world over. And my family, you know, I'm, I was born just outside of New Delhi, migrated to Australia when I was 18 months of age. Um, and that story you tell about India is, I understand that at a devastatingly intimate level because I know of, you know, people from where my, my family was from who would hate the concept of a daughter being born into the family, you know. But it's so crucial that we say the world over because we have this perception, particularly in Australia, that because we've made great strides towards equality, that the job is done. The job isn't done. It's so far from being done. And I think one of the things that's so important and part of this and why I'm so grateful that Gavin in particular is here on this panel is because the project that we've been working on for months now in There's No Place Like Home is firstly I think that we have a tendency when it comes to issues of equality and engaging men to talk about equality and gender equality in particular is that the men will talk at women. And I think that for men it's very crucial to understand that they don't need women to talk at them. They need at best to talk to them and more significantly to just shut up and listen. I was going to say shut the F up, but I, I realise that this is being recorded. Um, but genuinely just listening. You know, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the home, is um, that, that whole thing I remember when I was growing up, mum would say, like, you know, two ears, one mouth. Like, use them in proportion. And it's some of those 
foundational things around equality and respect get lost in workplaces, I think. And going back to there's no place like home, what we did, which hasn't been done in Australia, is rather than just talking to victim survivors or talking about them, we said here and gave them a microphone. And what you learn is the, the, the immense degree of privilege that those who haven't been impacted directly have is that we can learn so much from lived experience. And I think this extends to the gender equality conversation. I think this extends to every conversation is about the, the, the benefit of not just lived experience, but lived expertise. You know, so from engaging men in the equality conversation is about giving men in positions of power the knowledge, the skills to engage respectfully, ethically, meaningfully with women to make the future better for women and girls because then we fundamentally all benefit. Gavin, the media has a, you know, an incredible role to play. And I know that your most senior roles were at the ABC, but you were in commercial um, television at some point. You've worked all over the world. Can you see uh, change occurring outside of the ABC? What, what do you see now that you've, you know, sort of retired from your media life a little bit? What do you see when you watch it as a civilian at the moment and you're reading and watching television um, that isn't the ABC? I suppose I'm influenced because I spent a good decade or more in international news where I worked alongside people like Christiane Amanpour or Sheila McVicker or, you know, worked in the field. You know, when we were starting Al Jazeera English in the Middle East, you, you had this incredible experience of Qatar, which is, you know, systemically sexist in every way you can imagine. And then a news organisation who within Qatar was seeking to find incredible women all over the world who hadn't previously been involved in telling the stories of their, of their, their people and their countries. And so it was a real effort at Al Jazeera to say, look, how many different parts of the world can we find the best shit-hot women journalists who can tell these stories brilliantly. And so through South America, through Africa, through Asia and, and Southeast Asia, so many of the superstars of that channel when we started it were, you know, incredible women journalists who told these stories in really different ways, in really refreshing ways, and it was the success of the thing. So I've, I've seen those sorts of examples in international news, and then you come home to Australia and, you know, it is uh, often quite possible to feel a bit more depressed about the state of, of, of the media back here. And then even when, you know, as we back then sought to do at the ABC, when you tried to at least move the needle, the sorts of criticism that you get in the public sphere in Australia for being woke or for, you know, doing things because it's not meaningful but because of the gesture of it or because of the symbolism of it or whatever else, uh, becomes the conversation. So I think the, the media in Australia does have a long way to go, but they don't need to look very far to see where this is working much, much better. And you, you know, I'm reflecting a lot at the moment on what's going on in Ukraine, and you look at some of the incredible storytellers in Ukraine among the Ukrainian media, and so many of them are women. So the role models are there for us as a media. You just, we just have to look beyond our shores a little bit more and say, you know, show me a media organisation in the world that hasn't, maybe not in the Middle East, but in uh, some other parts of the world who hasn't kind of grasped with this um, and made it just a part of a great business, a part of great storytelling. Pip, 
I'm going to sort of ask you the same question about the tech industry. You've been in global tech companies, you've been in it all your life. We broadly think you do it better. You know, we have a sense that, you know, you are more progressive as a generalisation. Um, certainly, you know, under your leadership at Salesforce, you know, there's some impressive policies in place. Is that the case? Are you all like that? Or um, do you think there's a lot more to, to do in your sector as well? Oh, look, I mean, the numbers, and I'm a pretty data-driven person, the numbers would say there's way more work for us to do in, in tech. And in fact, you know, when you look at STEM courses coming out, we still, I mean, like three quarters of the HSC um, physics graduates were men. So we have a real challenge in regard to pipeline, especially when it requires STEM skills for jobs that require that. I think the thing that in my experience that we are doing well is leaning in and having the conversation with men. And the conversation is uncomfortable. And I think you've got to embrace the discomfort of that conversation. Because, you know, when I started talking to men about it, they, you know, quite often it's like the not all men response, which I have to be careful I don't get overly triggered on. This is not the moment for not all men because this is a moment to do what my fabulous colleagues here have said is, is to listen. So I think we have really worked hard to do better listening and to recognise and have the conversation that maybe you didn't cause the bias or cause the things that have gone wrong, but you've benefited from it. And equality can feel like oppression when you're used to privilege. And so really getting people to embrace that fact that you have benefited from this system will require you now to maybe not get those benefits anymore. And that might feel uncomfortable for you as an individual when you have benefited from that system that you may not have created. And so now might be the time for you to back away from that benefit and give somebody else room to even things up and make things better for everybody. And I think that's the thing that certainly the companies and the company I work for right now is working really hard to do. Suzanne, I've got red lights flashing at me, but I'm going to give you the last question. Do you have any advice? This is a group of future female leaders, current female leaders. Do you have any advice in your experience about how to go about engaging men in these conversations? I think what Tarang said, I think engage some good male allies, train them to start having those conversations with other men as well. It doesn't always have to be women to men. It can be men to men. In fact, can be more powerful when it's done and you can create the safe environment where men can talk freely about their own experiences and their own trauma. I'm sure as you talk to them, they'll tell you their own lived trauma as well about the expectations of being men in a culture like Australia as well. I think just have the conversations. You're trying to educate all the time. I, I guess that's not our job, but I do think you can use like snippets of this stuff today. I've got a list of notes to take home myself. Start a conversation, keep the conversation going, create that curiosity, keep it, keep it happening. I think we can't, we can't stop having this conversation. And, and in Australia, I think it's particularly hard. I mean, we've got a really macho culture here to shift. So I think um, using every tool we have, using humour, I use humour a lot because I think that can be a really good way. We can laugh at ourselves sometimes more easily. I think the discomfort is awkward, you know. It's not easy to grow. So letting people have the space to start where they are. You're not cancelling them because they made a mistake, but you're really genuine people who want to grow. You're going to help them grow. You're going to educate them, take them aside, say why that could have been done better next time, and you're going to help people to develop that way. I think that's the, that's the answer.
Not cancelling anyone because they made a mistake. It's excellent advice to finish on. Thank you. To Pip and Suzanne, thank you for your leadership in this space and for being here today. To Gavin and Tarong, I'm going to let you in a secret. Very few men wanted to do this panel today. Um, not that you're not that you're not super valued for being here, but uh, you're both outstanding. But I just want you to know you are both leaders um, and at the at the forefront of leading these conversations. And um, proud to know you both. Thank you very much, everybody. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. 